It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Marty Strong, CEO and Chief Strategy Officer of LGS Management Systems. Marty is a decorated retired Navy SEAL officer and the author of the new business leadership book, Be Nimble, How the Navy SEAL Creative Mindset Wins on the Battlefield and in Business. After 20 years in the military, Marty spent seven years as a successful investment advisor with UBS. He is now the CEO and Chief Strategy Officer of the LGS Management Group an employee-owned, multi-company enterprise focusing on training and healthcare. Marty Strong, welcome into the corner office. Hey, thanks for having me, Brent. Uh, Great to have you here. I know we talked a couple of months ago, and it's wonderful to get reconnected. And uh, just coming out of the uh, Thanksgiving weekend, uh, this will air a little bit later, but uh, let's start with that. How was your holiday weekend? (laughs) Well, uh, not too bad Thursday and Friday, but I was working on a lot of things uh, Saturday and Sunday, so. It was a good time to catch up, isn't it? I, I always like that downtimes over the holidays and getting caught up on some things. And uh, it's some some say it's a bad work habit, but I always like being having the quiet of the office. How about you? I do, and I like being a little bit ahead of the curve instead of behind the curve. <laughs> right, so I, right. I spend some quality time on early Saturday and Sunday mornings catching up and planning my next four or five days. Awesome. That's great. Well, listen, uh, we always like to kind of start in the beginning and that's of course where you grew up and your early family life was like. So tell us a little bit about that. What part of the country did you come in and, you know, brothers and sisters, mom and dad, what was that all about? Well, I was born in Sydney, Nebraska. That's the far left tip of the panhandle of the state of Nebraska. And uh, my father worked for the department of the army Hmm. as a civilian and after a couple of years, we moved to Omaha, which is the largest city in Nebraska right. on the opposite side of the state. And I stayed there till I was about 10, had um, a lot of you know odd jobs and kind of menial, menial uh, projects that would uh, allow me to earn an allowance, et cetera, from my, my father and mother, who were both Depression-era Iowa kids. So sure. real strong work ethic uh, yeah. in those early years. And my brother and sister, both younger. Uh, and I, we all moved to Japan Oh wow! when my father was, uh, selected to go to, uh, U S army command, uh, center in a place called camp Zama. Hmm. So we were there for four years. Wow. What, what ages was that morning? Uh, see, I was there from 10 to 14. Wow. Cool. And, uh, very interesting time, very, uh, enlightening, 
a lot of exposure to, you know, Asian culture, Japanese mm-hmm. culture. Uh, so I had a really good time. I even climbed Mount Fuji when I was 14. So yeah, great good experience. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then the came parents, back to the U.S. after that? Yeah, my parents got divorced at the end of that four years. And mm-hmm. my mom and I and my brother and sister came back to the same house in Omaha that we had rented while we were in Japan. And we were there, I guess, for about a year. And I went to go live with my father, who had been re, uh, reassigned to Honolulu, Hawaii. Oh. So I went to high school in Hawaii for a couple of years. And then cool. he was reassigned to... U.S. Tank Command in Detroit, and I moved and finished out high school in Gross Point. So that movie Gross Point Blank is about my high school. Yeah, fantastic, great. Well, what an interesting uh, life, and and you know, not a real typical one, obviously, from a kind of a U.S. childhood standpoint. What what were some of the influences that you had there? I mean, mom and dad, obviously. Uh, were there other folks that you, you know, kind of inspired you? You, you obviously chose a, a military career, at least for the first part of what you've done. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But, you know, who were some of the folks and what were some of the lessons learned from mom and dad and others during that period? Well, I give a shout out to my mom and my dad in, in my book because while they were uh, not entirely impactful in my life after probably age five or six uh, they were kind of, you know, hands-off parents. Again, depression era, you know, you figure it out, you get out there and get a job, you go take care of it. And I'm not here to babysit you kind of personalities. Right. My mom was very much a voracious reader and taught me to read when I was very, very young. And my dad was, a, although he had a degree in accounting, was a self-taught um, student in a lot of different things, religion and philosophy and and sociology and a lot of other cool kind of the, uh, the human sciences. And he had me reading those books, uh, when I was a teenager in Hawaii to, uh, get my allowance at that point. So I had to do a, an oral book report on the Hindu Upanishads and the book of Mormon and the Bible and wow. the Quran and a lot and Spinoza and, you know, all kinds of different things that, that I would have never been exposed to. Yeah. So the combination of, of those two things, learning to read very, very young and then being taught the value of self self-learning and seeking out wisdom in books. That's primarily what I got from my mom and dad. Other than that, it was primarily uh, coaches, athletic coaches. Yeah. I was yeah. in sports from eight years old on and they were much more of a driving factor in, in shaping the way I kind of saw the universe and what my, my possibilities were, you know, as a person. What sports did you play, Marty? I played football, I played baseball one season. I stunk. I wrestled. <laughs> I uh, I played football pretty much all the way through from about 10 years old to uh, my senior year in high school. And yeah. played basketball, I think, three or four of those of those years between middle school and senior year in high school. I swam the whole time. I was um, an yeah. AAU competitive swimmer. Nice. And... That's, that's about it. I think that's that, those are the main sports. Sounds like you were probably a pretty good student, too. I was, but, you know... Yeah, I think, you know, the whole point of, of learning how to read so early, most kids, at least back in those days, most kids were struggling with just trying to figure out how to read. Right. And most of the content of learning in all the early grades came out of books. Right. So right. if you were already ahead of that power curve, you were learning quicker and you were learning more and learning more easily. So that gave me a leg up uh, as a student. I, I was never good at math. I had to get passing scores all the way through to my, my graduate degree, but um, I was never, never a fan of it. And I never had, I don't think a very good mentor in that. So I always saw it as kind of the, uh, 
my, uh, you know, my, my nemesis every time I started, but I don't care what grade or, or what college program. I knew that was out there waiting for me and I didn't enjoy it. Right. What about entrepreneurial things? I mean, you didn't have a classic upbringing given the fact that you lived uh, in Japan and then I guess Hawaii for a while, but did you have the, the paper route and do things as well that uh, earned that extra spending money beyond the allowance? Yes. And, you know, all of us kids in Nebraska were all the, the children of, you know, either World War II era or Korean War era right. parents. And the fathers expected the, the sons to do all the chores around the house, uh, usually for free or a very small allowance. <laughs> and then you were told to get out there and earn pocket change. And and it was almost like an order. It wasn't it was a suggestion. So, you know, uh, mowing people's lawns, uh, raking leaves. Did a lot of uh, looking for bottles because in those days you could turn in bottles. Sure, and right. and, uh, and you put all those things together. So that starts to teach you the value of, of of work. It teaches you work ethic, but it also teaches you that you can work stupid or you can work smart. So you start to get you start to hone in on the things that are that are going to click and work and and have you know high leverage outcomes. So right. by the time we went to Japan, um, I sold light bulbs door to door on the uh, housing base. I Cool. Again, mowed lawns. It was a push mower, but you could check it out for free. Mowed lawns. I had a paper route. And I think through that time, and then when I came back to the United States, I ended up working in in farm co-ops, detasseling corn, picking mm -hmm. beans, baling hay, worked in warehouses, um, worked in landscaping companies, and lots of different restaurants. So I was always at least one or two jobs in at all times, mm -hmm. paid for my first first and second car, uh, cash from, from all those odd jobs before I joined the Navy. <laughs> so is that where most of the money went, uh, to, to save it for the car or were you doing other things as well that, uh, always, always the car. Yeah. yeah. I had a, I had a $750 1964 Rambler, the first car that could barely move. And I had to jump start it every time with, uh, I had to connect the, <laughs> the battery to the L to the uh, starter and all this other stuff with the wire. Wasn't really impressive on dates. Um, and then I traded up for about a $1,500 car after that. So, and you could buy cars like that back then. They don't really sure. have those available now that, you know, all my five kids grew up. I, I realized that they don't have cars like that anymore. At least they're right. not legal to drive. Right. So came back, uh, did your, finished up your high school. Uh, was it a kind of a foregone conclusion that you'd go to college? Did you, you know, obviously go to the military right away? Tell us a little bit about the decisions you made kind of coming out of high school. Sure. Which you did next. Well, <clears throat> oddly enough, between Japan, Nebraska, Hawaii, and Detroit, I ended up almost in four different schools throughout that high school yeah. uh, time frame. And everywhere I went, the credits from the prior high school, for the most part, didn't convey. Hmm. And I'd have wow. to take all core classes again. So when I graduated, I was told that I had about five years worth of high school uh, credits. And the uh, and, and I had a 3.9 grade point average. So hmm. at the time, though, there wasn't very much as by way of counseling. Parents are still kind of the ones that push their kids to think about college. My parents Sweet. never talked about it. My dad who went to college on the GI Bill after the Korean War, right. uh, decided that the best thing for me and my brother was to join the military like he did and figure stuff out, but he wasn't going to take care of college for us. So mm -hmm. that pretty much meant for me, I was either going to become, quote him, a bum or go join the military. 
<laughs> I didn't want to be a two ups, top two ups at the ends of that spectrum. That, right? Yeah, those are the two doors. Bummer, bum be a be a guy in the service. Mm-hmm. So, so I joined the Navy as the default to being a bum. Right. And my brother eventually joined the Navy also after me, my younger brother. And that's how I got got into the Navy. Yeah. Cool. And the SEAL program did that uh, come naturally to you? Did you get recruited for that? Tell us a little bit about that uh, that direction. Well, the whole SEAL, the SEAL experience has, has changed radically over the years. There's a lot yeah. more money involved. Back in the uh, late 70s, there was, one, the forces were very small. There was only about 300 or so SEALs. Now I think there's like 3,200 active duty SEALs. The, there was only SEAL Team 1 and SEAL Team 2, and then there was about five or six uh, underwater demolition teams. Right. So what the Navy didn't need was more SEALs. So there wasn't any recruiting. There was no recruiting budget. There was no recruiting effort. You couldn't go to a recruiting station and ask about them Mm. because they didn't know anything about them. And essentially it was word of mouth, either from existing SEALs uh, telling other people or uh, people on ships, active duty sailors, hearing about the programs and trying to figure out how to uh, volunteer for them. So that's the normal way back then to get in, unlike now. So I went to radar and air traffic control school because my father had been a radar operator in the Navy during the Korean war for four years. And that's the only job I knew about from listening to him. Sure. And I finished that school and through, a, through an error or mistake, administrative mistake in my, in my orders, I ended up instead of going to a ship in the Mediterranean, as I expected, I ended up at uh, underwater demolition seal training in Coronado, California, which is part oh. of San Diego. Yeah. And so I did not want to be a seal, did not plan to be a seal. I wasn't, I didn't even know what a seal was. <laughs> At that age, a frogman to me was anybody that put a scuba tank on his back. I, I didn't know anything else about that. I got there. They acknowledged that there was a mistake, and then they talked me into staying. Huh. So that's how I started in the yeah. SEAL teams. Wow. Fantastic. And uh, about 20 years in the military. And were you a SEAL the entire time? And I was. They keep I you was. In yeah. I was an enlisted SEAL for the first 10 years. Yeah. And I got my undergraduate degree in business uh, during that time frame, and then I applied and was selected for officer's candidate school and then finished the second half of that 20 years as an officer in the SEAL teams. Awesome. Awesome. So you were training then and developing and wow, what a transformation. I'm sure the SEAL team went over that. It changed over that period of time, I guess, right? Radical, as you radical change. It started yeah. out with the very first training I went through when I arrived at SEAL team two was four months of pre-deployment to Vietnam training, which Vietnam was already over by a year and a half or so. But they didn't know what else to do. They saw themselves as a jungle fighter, you know, unit. And so they just kept doing the same thing. So I went through, even to, we were even using Vietnamese um, uh, language, you know, uh, the same stuff that they were teaching people when the war was actually going on, you know, Uh how to, how to tell people to get down, put their hands up, drop their guns, come over here, get over there, hurry up, you know. And, and then within four years of that first experience, we had expanded the missions into Arctic warfare. I was, you know, skiing 300 miles north of the Arctic Circle. We were doing complex uh, ship attack training, uh, using all kinds of advanced uh, navigation technology underwater. We were all kinds of things, many submarines, and yeah. and eventually very complex and advanced uh, skydiving techniques, uh, including something called Hayho, where you open up your parachute at high altitude and fly in a formation using navigation boards. Um, and land as a team in a space as small as the um, uh, the uh, helicopter pad on an oil rig. Wow! 
So yeah, big change. We went from Flintstones to Jetsons in about five years. <laughs> Good way to describe it. And it's been, gosh, almost 25 years since you left or about that. You left in, in the mid nineties, but you, you spent 20 years there. And, and if you could kind of encapsulate, you know, what are two or the three of the key leadership lessons that you learned, you know, coming out of SEALs that you think has been, you know, most, um, most appropriately applied to business? Because you've, you've obviously been in business now a little bit longer than you had uh, been in the SEALs. I'd say the, the one that I, that I keep falling back on, and, and I talk about it in the book, but I almost named the book Be Humble Instead of Be Nimble, and that is to have uh, intellectual and emotional humility. That The intellectual side is don't be a know-it-all. Don't, don't believe that your past successes have actually given you some great superpower over what's happening now and, and in right. the future. It, it, it's appropriate, it's applicable, but the context may have changed and the competition may have adjusted. And so you're going to get your, uh, your butt handed to you as a leader if you, if you lean on that. And, and the same thing from an emotional standpoint that you, you think not that you know everything, but you have a feeling of superiority or mm. control that is kind of an illusion or the opposite of that. You've had you know some hard knocks and you're carrying yeah. that forward every day. You're thinking, well, I can't do this. I don't know how to make decisions. You know, and and either one of those emotional states, either the high where you believe you've got everything under control mm-hmm. and you're a winner all the time or the low where you don't have anything under control and you're going to lose no matter what you do. Those those are not useful. So you learn that in the SEAL teams Interesting. Yeah. through repeat stress training and yeah. where they allow you to fail, they force you to fail, they set you up to fail, and then they critique you minutely in all of your decisions, actions, judgments. Um, and then you, you've you sent you get a sense of yourself and you get a sense of that rule that I just said, you know, that, that if I rely on the past and I lean on the past, I'm going to, I'm going to fall. I'm, I'm going to, I'm not going to do well, but if I look at everything open-minded, if I get my eyes open, my ears open and absorb new information and don't, don't have a parochial view of everything, I can, I can make some really good decisions based mm-hmm. on what reality is because yeah. reality is what we're all leading through. It's not, we're not leading through the past, you know, that's over. All right. Cool. So you came out, decided to go into financial services. Uh, was that, you know, by accident, by design? You know, what, how did you kind of choose that field? And uh, Lake Mason, I think you you started with, is that correct? Coming out. That, that's right. Um, yeah. Again, not kind of a nonlinear path. I wanted to go to law school. I was getting close to the end of my twenty years in uniform, and and I decided that I was going to uh, start up a little boutique operation, a little put my shingle up in a small town up in Northern, uh, excuse me, Northern Maryland that my brother had moved to and kind of reconstitute the family and the kids and all that. And a friend of mine who was, had just retired about six months prior to me, the Navy captain seal came by the, the command I was, I was in, talked to somebody, found out that I was going to go to law school when I got out, came in, grabbed me and said, you're not going to law school. Let's go to lunch. <laughs> So at the end of, at the end of two hours, he talked me out of going to law school. I'd already taken the LSAT and everything. I was, I mean, wow. I was well down that path Yeah. and he, uh, talked me into going into the financial services industry. Cause he huh. said, everything you're talking about means you want to be an entrepreneur. You want to run your own show. You don't need to go th- the three more years of schooling for that. that that's hmm. just a waste of time. So he was with a company called Alex Brown, which focused on initial public offerings. They were in Baltimore. Uh, the, the founder of the um, company's son had gone through SEAL training when, when I was an instructor. So it seemed like I was going to be a shoe in that they'd bring me in. 
but I started evaluating Alex Brown compared to other companies up in, in uh, Northern Maryland. Lake Mason had more of the entrepreneurial hmm. uh, business model. So hmm. I ended up going and uh, interviewing with Lake Mason at length. And then, uh, you know, I joined them and it was a good choice. They, you're pretty much on your own. You started from, from a cold start. They didn't give you any clients. They just get in a room. Here's a, here's a, here's phone, a phone book. book. Go yeah. for it. And, <laughs> and that's the moment where I realized that the rule I told you about that I thought I'd learned in the SEAL teams was, was back haunting me again because I had gone from being a very successful uh, SEAL officer mm-hmm. to being the worst salesperson in the history of Lake Mason because <laughs> they didn't teach that anywhere. You know, I didn't teach right. it in my undergrad or my graduate program. So right. yeah, I, uh, I started in a very dark place <laughs> calling anybody and everybody I knew who, who knew anybody that had ever sold anything for a living because I was living off of uh, commissions and fees. There was no sure. salary. So right, right. And did you move into management there or did that come a little bit later in your career? I did not. I was, uh, I'd interviewed for branch management uh, position, I guess about two years in at Lake Mason, but right around the same time, UBS was trying to establish a footprint and in uh, the same market to go head to head with Merrill Lynch. And they, their proposition was, you know, take your book of business, the high end book of your business and focus just on the high net worth uh, clients that you have and go fee based, which means I manage my money differently, smaller, um, more control and a lot more fun for me. And, uh, so I, I went through the interview process. I did not get selected for branch manager and I also accepted the UBS offer. So I went with UBS yeah. at that point and, you know, finished out the rest of that seven and a half years with UBS doing high net worth, uh, wealth management essentially and, and right. managing a portfolio. And, and did you have a team at that stage or, or still? I had uh, three people yeah. reporting to me uh, that I had to hire and pay for. UBS had the same kind of a, approach as Lake Mason you just paid out of your, out of your, um, your fees and commissions for everything, marketing, sales, people. The only thing they covered was the, uh, the back office support on financial products and services right. and the, uh, the footprint, the actual leased space yeah. and yeah. the furniture and everything. You, you covered everything else. So I had, yeah. I had three people I had to manage. They'll probably tell you they had to manage me, <laughs> but you know, there were three sharp ladies and, uh, and they helped me expand my business even more because up until joining UBS, I'd been a one man, one man, you know, show. And that was kind of hard analyzing the markets, picking stocks, deciding what the portfolio balance should look like, and also trying to meet, you know, new, new prospects, retain the clients that you have doing reviews, all of that at the same time with just one person and and answering the phone every day. That was a little bit much. Right. Right. And then the next pivot, a pretty, pretty significant one. I think 9-11 had a little bit to do with that, but uh, you went into the security and counterterrorism consulting practice. Uh, tell us again about that, you know, kind of change and, you know, what was the motivations around it and, and, and how, how did that kind of fit in your longer career plan? Well, I didn't have a longer career plan. <laughs> I, I, I think anybody listening to this is starting to get the gist of that. <laughs> Starting from when I joined the Navy, I, um, and didn't have much control, so I think fate was 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 calling the shots. And mm. I was in an office with a uh, regional vice president of UBS when the planes hit the towers mm. in New York City yeah. that morning. And I looked when the second plane hit, I 
I just turned to him and I said, we're at war. And yeah. he didn't understand what I meant by that, but I knew. And I could just envision in my mind, everybody getting recalled, all the SEALs getting pulled back in. I've been Sweet. through that drill so many times. And, right. and I just felt like uh, I needed to put the jersey back on. I needed to get back in, help somehow. America had been attacked. I was, oh, I was in my early 40s at the time. Right. And I didn't feel like an old man, but I did have a disability from a parachute accident. And... They didn't really need guys like me. They needed fighters. Yeah. From an so, active duty standpoint. Yeah. yeah. So I started reaching out and consulting uh, on asymmetrical warfare, counterterrorism, anti-terrorism, because really the flip side of being a SEAL is being a terrorist. I mean, everything that terrorists use, you know, is pretty much all they have at their disposal, which is pretty much all special operations rely on. Yeah. They, you know, you know sneaking and hiding and camouflage and, and coming in from a different angle that nobody's expecting, walking in looking like a like a, a cleaning uh, you know a cleaning crew for the building, but you're actually a reconnaissance team. You know all those kinds of things. So you can kind of think like they think, and that's where mm-hmm. my value was initially. So the, most of the consulting was related to threat profile development for uh, how are the bad guys going to hit us, and then it was very specific to certain locations. So I did the I did the uh, 2004 Athens Olympics and which all that work started in 2003, but, and then some U S facilities. So that felt like I was kind of in the game a little bit. At least I was trying to stop bad guys, uh, even though I wasn't in uniform, but uh, I ended up getting into some contracts and into the, you know, government contracting world because of that and getting my clearances back and, and starting to get into uh, helping the U S government directly. Right. Right. Cool. And you did that for a few years. And then I think the, another pivot from to XE services, correct? Is that, was that your next, uh, next mountain to conquer, so to speak? Yeah. So that I was, uh, the, the senior vice president and business development and marketing guy for multiple companies. Uh, some of them were government contracting companies. Some of them weren't, uh, and it was a, a wide range of, of, of commercial operations. Uh, there was aviation, there were vehicle companies, mm. there were, um, just all kinds of different companies. So the nice thing about that experience was I became kind, I started out as being kind of a business development marketing guy, but I also became the evaluator fix it guy. Mm. So as companies were being acquired, I was sent to try to figure out what, you know, what their brand was and kind of clean that up. But I ended up being the subject matter expert about these companies from an operational mechanics standpoint. Mm. And that allowed me to give a lot of feedback uh, to the, the senior officers of the company. And then I also got involved in strategic planning, strategic writing for each of the different companies, and then eventually holistically for all the companies. And that exposed me to kind of what works and doesn't work in, in strategic thought, you know, applicable thought, not pie mm-hmm. in the sky, kind of hopes and dreams thought. And all of that, plus, you know, um, a lot of other lessons learned kind of prepared me when I left there for becoming a, um, an equity owner, a partner in a very small government contracting firm at the time, at the time called Lynx Security. Now it's called uh, uh, Lynx Global Solutions or LGS. Right. Yeah. And that's where you are today. Well, I'm, I'm in a holding company, management holding company called LGS Management Group. Mm-hmm. And we own, uh, we're an employee owned company and we have two different business operations. One is the original government contracting company right. and the other one is uh, a health 
company. It's pure commercial health services delivery. So between both of them, a little over 600 employees and, you know, doctors and nurses on one hand and former military, former law enforcement, people doing primarily uh, high-end tactical training and leadership training on the government side. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of federal contracts or is it mostly working with government agencies that work with the private sector or give us a little bit more, you know, sure. So breath. in the case of links or any government contracting company, what they do is they, they see published requests for proposals from any government agency and within department of defense, any of the different services. And there's a lot of them. And I'm talking about there might be a hundred to 200,000 of those requests for proposals right, right now on, on the, on their system. So there's, there's no lack of, of work, but then you have to align yourself with what they're asking for. And there's a whole set of rules and, and profile bona fides, et cetera. The, you have to have actual past performance doing the work, which is why it's difficult to get into con- government contracting. Right. You have to say I've done something and you have to show proof and you have to have references, but if you've never done it, you can't bid. So, right. but you can't bid it unless you've done it. So, that it's a tough business to break into, but once you get in there, it's not too bad, especially if you do a good job. And what they do is the gov- these government agencies have all these things that they don't do inherently that they want the private sector, the the industrial base to either do or solve for them or mm. build for them. And we're all uh, people on the link side. So all we do is staffing solutions and management kind of design of staffing solutions. So when we we bid on a proposal, we put together, excuse me, we bid on a, um, a request for proposal. We put a multi-page proposal. It could be anywhere from 30 pages to 500 pages uh, with, along with the bid, the, the dollar value, right. and we submit it. And at that point, it's an auction, and the government evaluates the quality of the proposed solutions and the quality of the, of the, the cost and the price that's presented. And once you've been awarded it, they're usually five-year-long contracts, and wow. you just implement the plan. Yeah. So that's what Lynx does. Uh, the, the healthcare company is called Legacy Care, and the healthcare company is a pure commercial operation. It doesn't have government contracts. It, it wins business uh, one healthcare environment at a time. Right. How would you say your leadership style has kind of evolved over time, particularly since the days that you left as a SEAL to now you know, running a, a fairly significant middle market company? Well, I think... The short answer is I really see the genius in Mike Tyson's quote of everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> when you start out as a leader, and I think I started out the first time I was actually in charge of anybody, I was probably 23 years old right. in the SEAL teams. And you you have a chip on your shoulder. You know, you've, you've moved up in rank. You feel like, you know, you're smart enough to be a leader. Other people say you're smart enough to be a leader. You've been given a title and the, and the job description leader. And then you turn around and start acting like a, what you think a leader is going to act like. And you've got all these people that are older than you and wiser than you and smarter than you and more qualified than you staring at you. <laughs> and, and I always looked young. I mean, at, when I joined the Navy at, at 17, I looked like I was 10 years old. And, and when I joined Lake Mason at 37, I looked like I was 24 years old. So <laughs> I, I, it's been a, a hard, long road for me to look credible. Right. Uh, and, but you know, the, the, the audacious kind of, I, I know I can do this. I can control everything by the wisdom and the power of my, my leadership. Uh, that just goes down, you know, in flames in the beginning, at least it did for me. Right. And I started really listening to the feedback and, 
and I got a lot of good feedback, especially in the SEAL teams, because they'll just get in your face and tell you you stink. <laughs> they'll, they'll point out exactly. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, you're being run through official training and, and you're being evaluated as a leader. So as I moved up through the senior ranks as an enlisted SEAL and then as an officer, you're running through these practice rehearsal tests and reviews and analysis of, of you, the team you build, your subordinate leaders and how you're interacting with them, how you're interacting with the higher command, you know, how are you communicating, how are you explaining right. what's going on, the judgment calls, et cetera. And you just get more humble and more humble and more humble. And that's the evolutionary process I went through. Yeah. And then of course, getting out of uniform, I was immediately humbled. So I've just pretty much um, nowadays, I, I, I see what happens. I see it coming. I take a deep breath. I clear my mind and, and start trying to understand it based on the information I have right in front of me. And, uh, that's how I've evolved as a leader because yeah. I can make decisions quickly. I'm a, I'm a pretty good decider, but you know, the analysis is usually for most people is based on the past. They do it kind of a rear view mirror approach. What have I done before? How did I fix this before? How did somebody I saw fix this before? I'm just going to apply whatever somebody did before to what I see in front of me. And I've seen that fail so many times that now, rather than having a knee-jerk you know, reaction to pull back, you know, put, reach back and pull something from the past, I start asking lots of questions of the people that are standing in front of me about what's going on right now. Mm. And that makes me a much better leader. And I think I'm making decisions that are that are cleaner and clearer and more appropriate to the reality that, that I'm facing and that my team's facing. Yeah, cool. Well, how would you describe kind of the uniqueness or, or maybe what's different about LGS uh, culture, company standpoint? Well, I think the, and, and for the senior leadership of Legacy Care, the healthcare company, I think it's the yeah. same thing. You know, you, you select for culture. It's hard to develop culture after the fact. And what I mean right. by that is, if you hire in people that can dunk a basketball and you, then you hire in somebody that can't dunk a basketball, they can't align with the culture. Right. And if you bring in people that are cheerful and, and approach everything with alacrity and a willingness to, to roll up their sleeves and join another team, join a project, become a leader, become a follower, whatever, you know, that group, that, that kind of, that hire, if you put enough of them together, that, that creates that culture. If you bring in people that are optimists, that creates that culture. If you bring in people that are pessimists, that creates that culture. So culture is really first managed, manipulated, or created by the hiring process and making sure that the, the front end of the HR, um, I guess, funnel, funnel yeah. is fully, under, you know, fully understands that. And, and most of them don't. Most of them are looking at the technical right. alignment. Qualifications. The, the job posting against the resume right. and all that. Right. And that's great. You know, that that's a prerequisite, but the the main slam dunk hiring factor for links and for legacy care is that they fit. And the fit for us, because, you know, we're growing all the time. Legacy care has been growing leaps and bounds. I mean, incredibly fast over the last couple of years. We started four and a half, five years ago in a 25 mile radius of Richmond. Now we're in eight states and you can't have a bunch of mopey people <laughs> and a bunch of pessimists and hat glass half, half empty kind of personalities around if you're moving that fast and changing right. that fast. Right. You basically need people that are happy to play pickup basketball and they see a, a virtue in being successful at playing pickup basketball. So that's, that's what we try to do. And then we try to maintain the culture by, you know, establishing and, and maintaining a sense of humor at the, from me on down, you know, it's okay to fail. It's okay to fail in public. 
we learn we all learn something from failure and as long as you keep that as a constant they eventually believe it and uh yeah and then even sometimes if you end up accidentally hiring in somebody that doesn't have those personality traits or character traits they kind of evolve into it a little bit because they see everybody's not a worry not worried about job security as much as they're worried about contribution right right yeah cool what do you personally look for when you're you know interviewing people and the folks that you're going to invest in and hire i look for a sense of humor hmm? i ask a question usually what what stresses you out at work and if i get a really stressful response <laughs> <laughs> as, as opposed to, you know, a chuckle and a, well, I'll tell you what, you know, a kind of a sense of humor response. I realized that, you know, they, they see stress as a real, you know, kind of battering ram in their, in their life and in, the, in their work. It's probably what they wake up thinking about. It's probably what they go to sleep thinking about. Mm. And that's, that's hard. I mean, in an organization that's growing all the time, I'm looking for people that can handle stress. And I'm also looking for people that or you get you kind of a natural leader if you think about it. There was an old kind of a joke in the teams. You know, you want to you don't want to be that one guy out of seven rowing that boat in buds in basic <laughs> seal training who's right. complaining about the cold water and how and, and are we there yet? You know, because yeah. because the one of the first rules in that particular elite unit is understand the reality, suck it up, and contribute. Right. So you want to have people that are they're the, the, you know, all, all humans get stressed, but they see stress as a part of the job and they have kind of a healthy uh, perspective about stress. And then if they have a sense of humor, that gives them a way to, to compete and battle against the negatives of stress. And that's, that's, that's kind of the first thing I look for. As a matter mm. of fact, when I sit in on the interviews nowadays, that's pretty much all I'm focusing on is do they have a sense of humor? Yeah as a key indicator of um, comfort in the interview process, but also, yeah. you know, how they can be comfortable with, with the dynamics of change and scaling and all the other things that are going on in the world and affecting businesses. And the second thing is, you know, what is it that stresses them literally? And that's, that's always telling too, because if it's something yeah. that, that isn't going to be helped by joining us, then that's a good thing for us to know ahead of time. Uh, like for example, if somebody says, you know, even with a, with a good sense of humor, what I get stressed at is when somebody gives me a job to do and then they ask me to go help somebody else or help somebody else that really stresses. Well, then that doesn't work in a company that's, you know, big red flag. Yeah. Well, well you know, it's good for some companies, but right. we don't have a stovepipe, a stovepipe structure. We have a yeah. collaborative, everybody jump in and paddle the boat. Get so the job great. done. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, Marty, you've been very, very uh, generous with your time. Thank you for that. We always have one last question we ask all our guests, and that's kind of what career life advice you'd give to someone who maybe has their eyes on the corner office someday. Uh, I would seek out every possible learning leadership experience mm. you can. And, and you don't have to be young to do this, and it's not something you do when you're young and then you stop because you right. think you've arrived. Uh, nonprofits need leadership. Uh, supervising anything is still a form of leadership. So seek out actual physical, you know, tactile experiences, either in by volunteering within your own organization or business or company, but also seeking there's opportunities out there all over the place in organizations and do it for that reason. Say, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to figure out, like if you were a fighter, you'd seek out people to spar against, to, to become better, to learn your weaknesses and then figure out how to, how to correct your weaknesses. The second thing is 
become a student of leadership and understand that there's lots of people that have gone before you. They've read, uh, they assume they've written a lot of good things down. You know, the Jack Welch's of the world, there's a lot of good books and you can learn and live what other leaders have experienced and how they've ascended and how they've grown and how they've moved either laterally before they went up or very quickly in a parabolic way, straight up. And you see the pros and the cons of, of both of those experiences. And you see the tricks and the tips of, of surviving that process and how do you ascend to the highest and best use you can possibly uh, ascend to. That's, that's probably the two tangible ways somebody listening to this could go out yeah. there tomorrow and start affecting their, their potential and the probability of them moving into the corner office. Their future. Great. Well, Marty Strong, CEO and Chief Strategy Officer of LGS Management Group, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thanks, Brent. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode. 